Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. Due to the graphic nature of this woman's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of assault, robbery, rape, violence, and murder that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Hot time, hot time. We got hot time now. The 1930s. The decade of legendary gangsters. Bootleggers fighting prohibition. I'm going to live long enough to see America so dry, you'll have to prime a man before it can spit, and I'll bite the saloon. Robbers going after the big banks that were responsible for destroying lives during the Great Depression. The United States was at a breaking point. With the stock market crash of 1929, millions of Americans lost their life savings. By 1933, nearly 13 million Americans were unemployed. The tremendous crowds which you see gathered outside the stock exchange are due to the greatest crash in the history of the New York Stock People were looking for heroes larger-than-life characters who would stick it to the man and win back their country for them. In the Midwest, it was Al Capone, John Dillinger, and Pretty Boy Floyd. In the South, it was Bonnie Parker and Clyde Barrow. Following in the footsteps of other legendary Wild West outlaws like Jesse James and Billy the Kid, Bonnie and her boyfriend Clyde rampaged through the Southeast, robbing banks, killing people, and leaving a wave of chaos behind them. Their stories followed them around the country. Like Billy the Kid and Jesse James before them, they were Robin Hood figures who robbed big banks and redistributed the money to farmers who were struggling with the effects of the Dust Bowl, a dry period in the regions from Texas to Nebraska that killed crops and livestock. In a world full of male criminals, Bonnie Parker stood out among them. Glamorous, charming, and undeniably feminine, Bonnie became America's unlikely sweetheart. In high heels and Maybelline mascara, she was a hero for broken people everywhere. 
She was someone for poor folks to desire and aspire to be. But who was Bonnie Parker? And how did she, in just two years, become the most wanted woman in America? Hi, I'm Claire, and this is Female Criminals. Today, we're talking about Bonnie Parker, the female half of the infamous crime duo Bonnie and Clyde. And this is my co-host, Vanessa. Hi, everyone. We'd like to ask a quick favor. Would you leave a five-star review of Female Criminals on your favorite podcast directory? It seems so simple, but it really helps us out. And don't forget to subscribe while you're there, because a new episode comes out every Wednesday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and on Twitter at Parcast Network. Bonnie Elizabeth Parker was born in Rowena, Texas on October 1, 1910. Rowena was a town of farmers. Bonnie's father, Charles, was a bricklayer, and her mother, Emma, made sure everyone knew how different their family was. They were better than farmers. They were somebody. Emma always felt like a big fish in a small pond. She paraded around the adorable Bonnie and her two siblings, Billie Jean and Buster, making sure they were the center of attention at all times. Around 1913 or 1914, when Bonnie was just three years old, she was invited to sing a hymn for her church. She agreed, but when she started singing, the song that came out was... He's a Devil in His Own Hometown, by Billy Murray. Instead of the godly music she had been asked to sing. Rather than being embarrassed by Bonnie going rogue, Emma was proud of her daughter for standing out from the other kids. And Bonnie's father thought she was too cute to punish. Bonnie was a charmer, even from a young age. When Bonnie was four years old, her father died suddenly. There's no surviving record of the cause of death, but it was unexpected. Left poor and alone, Emma had no choice but to move the family to her parents' house in Cement City, an economically depressed suburb of Dallas, Texas. Bonnie's grandparents, Frank and Mary Kraus, weren't much better off financially than Emma, but with three young children, she needed all the help she could get. Emma hated Cement City. She was no longer at the top of the social food chain, and with no one to support her, she was forced to get a job as a seamstress. Perhaps all of this change took a toll on Bonnie. Please note, Vanessa's not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she's done a lot of research for this show. Losing a parent during childhood can be devastating to the psychological development of a child. According to psychologist J. William Worden's 1996 Child Bereavement Study, children who have lost a parent often experience anger, which can be expressed in acting out behavior. This kind of behavior was found more often in families where the surviving parent was functioning less well, families with fewer financial resources, and families who went through a lot of change following the parent's death. All of those things applied to Bonnie. She had moved away from her childhood home, her family was poor, and Emma had gotten a job for the first time in Bonnie's four years of life. As Bonnie grew up in Cement City, she definitely exhibited this acting out behavior. Between the ages of four and six, 
Bonnie would set small fires, steal her grandpa's wine and drink it, and fight in school with other girls as well as boys. She enjoyed getting into trouble so much that potential punishments and consequences didn't seem to matter to her. Bonnie had always craved attention, but now her only parent was busy working and her grandparents worked as well. There was nowhere for Bonnie to get the attention she so desired. Bonnie found an outlet for her attention-seeking when she started school at age six. From the time she was a toddler, Bonnie was always singing. When she started school, she focused on this and other ways to express herself. She was an intelligent student who did well in her lessons. She liked to play sports, do acrobatics, and play piano. She was in every school play she could be in. At the age of 12, she won the town's spelling bee and the newspaper printed her name in the list of winners. When she grew up, she wanted to be a writer, a poet, a Broadway actress, or, most of all, a movie star. She loved the glamour of movies and musicals. She loved makeup and fashion, and even paid to have her own glamour shot taken at age 15. She wanted to be anything but normal. Bonnie dreamt of being famous more than anything. But she knew she would never achieve her dream of being an actress. She was a poor girl from a small Texas town. She had no hope of reaching the levels of Mary Pickford or Greta Garbo. And with her family's lack of money, she wouldn't be able to go to college. But Bonnie wasn't all fire and fight. She was also compassionate. From the time of grammar school, she would help kids who needed it like her classmate who was paralyzed, whom she'd help up the stairs every morning. She was close to her family and loved her mother and siblings intensely. She was also a hopeless romantic, even as a teenager. Her cousin Bess once said, quote, when Bonnie loved, she loved with all her heart, end quote. Maybe it was this intense love that led her to where she would end up years later. Hmm. At age 15, Bonnie fell in love with a fellow classmate, 16-year-old Roy Thornton. Prone to doing everything in excess, she got both of their names tattooed on her right thigh, inside two hearts connected by an arrow. In the 1920s, tattoos among people in the U.S. were not popular. In fact, most people who had tattoos at this time were in the circus. It's no surprise, though, that Bonnie got a tattoo. After all, it was just one more thing to make her stand out from the crowd. At 15, Bonnie was determined to marry Roy. Even though Emma disapproved, she thought they were too young. It wasn't normal for people to get married that young, even in the 1920s. In 1926, the median marriage age for women was 21, and for men it was 24. But as she often did, Bonnie wore her mother down. Emma saw how in love the two of them were and gave her consent. A few weeks before her 16th birthday, on September 25, 1926, Bonnie and Roy tied the knot. But married life wasn't everything Bonnie hoped it would be. Weeks into her marriage, Bonnie was incredibly homesick. She visited her mother all the time, and eventually, she and Roy ended up moving in with her. With her mother around, Bonnie was much happier. It didn't take long, though, for the winds to change. Roy got his money in mysterious ways. When Bonnie asked him about it, he'd get cagey. 
1927, roughly a year into their marriage, Roy disappeared for 10 days. When he returned home, he began drinking heavily and physically abusing Bonnie. She was, of course, saddened by Roy's treatment of her. Love wasn't supposed to be like this. When Roy was gone, Bonnie felt lonely and stuck in her small town. She was convinced he was cheating on her, which broke her heart. Following the first 10-day disappearance, Roy disappeared more and more often, and Bonnie started waitressing to pay the bills. According to author Pamela Thomas, who did extensive psychological research in her book, Fatherless Daughters, most fatherless women overly romanticize men in relationships. They fail to see men realistically and believe they need them desperately. They easily become obsessed, oftentimes with men who do not give them the attention they need. Because fatherless daughters haven't experienced the attention and love from a father, they frequently become addicted to the exciting feeling of happiness and new love. When Bonnie experienced this bliss with Roy, it would have been normal for her to lose perspective and fail to judge him for who he truly was. She had rushed into this marriage. After all, it was her first love, and now she was brutally awake to reality. Bonnie's immense need for attention couldn't be satiated by Roy. He was hardly ever home. When he was there, he would hit her. Yet she still missed him when he was away. According to psychotherapist Michael J. Formica, women stuck in abusive relationships often feel a need for the comfort and attention that comes from their partner, even if the foundation of their relationship is abuse. So why not get a divorce? It was the 1920s. Divorce wasn't nearly as common as it is now. In 1927, only 1.6 in every 1,000 people got divorced. Bonnie was only 17 years old, and she still held on to this hope for a romantic marriage with Roy. Even after Bonnie and Roy broke up and he went to jail, Bonnie felt it wouldn't be right to divorce him. Perhaps this feeling was a product of the social norms of the era. It could also go back to her childhood. According to Pamela Thomas, the most prevalent psychological result of a daughter losing a father is fear of abandonment. Daughters who grow up without a father often do everything they can to preserve a relationship, even when they're unhappy. They have trouble breaking up with partners or getting divorced, and sometimes find themselves clinging to abusive relationships. So how did Bonnie cope with Roy's abandonment around 1928? Bonnie kept busy as a waitress at Hargrave's Cafe in East Dallas. Her work put her in contact with men from all different walks of life. She began seeing other people, and some say she turned to sex work in order to make extra money. But she still had feelings for her estranged husband. In early 1929, when Bonnie was 18, Roy returned home after more than a year away. Bonnie found out his money had been coming from criminal activity, theft and burglary. Roy was arrested for burglary shortly after returning home. Bonnie would never see him again, though she wore her wedding ring until her dying day, perhaps for the glamour of it more than anything else. Roy was killed in 1937 during a prison escape attempt. With her husband behind bars, Bonnie felt truly alone in this world. 
trapped in Cement City with her dreams of fame swiftly fading away. Though Roy had been gone for most of their marriage, Bonnie had still felt like she had someone, and she always held on to that belief that he would come back for her. After Roy's arrest, Bonnie started waitressing at a different restaurant called Marco's in downtown Dallas. But her big heart soon got her in trouble again. She was nearly fired several times for handing out food to poor people. Though she didn't love the job, she needed the money and pleaded with her boss to keep her around. On a particularly blue day, thinking she would never have the glamorous life of adventure she'd always expected to be hers, Bonnie wrote in her diary, quote, why don't something happen, end quote. And soon enough, it did. We'll return to our story in just a moment. And now, back to female criminals. What, what line of work you in? When you're not stealing cars. Well, I tell you, uh, I'm looking for suitable employment right now. Oh, yes. Well, what'd you do before? I was, uh, I was in state prison. State prison? Uh-huh. Well, I guess, uh, some little lady wasn't so nice. It was armed robbery. In the U.S., the 1920s were referred to as the Roaring Twenties. For the first time in the nation's history, more people lived in cities than on farms, and consumerism was at an all-time high. Between 1920 and 1929, wealth in the United States nearly doubled, and many people began buying stocks for investment purposes. By 1929, though, production had already declined, unemployment had risen, and consumer debt was steadily increasing. Stocks were valued far higher than they actually should have been. On October 24th, nervous stockholders began selling their shares, causing what is known as the Great Depression. Most of Bonnie's customers at Marco's restaurant in Dallas, Texas, were bankers, wealthy businessmen, and lawyers. They were put out of work as a result of the Great Depression, and at the end of November, Marcos was forced to close, leaving Bonnie unemployed. Since so many people were facing unemployment at the same time, Bonnie couldn't find work. She started doing odd jobs, such as babysitting and cleaning, in order to make a living. It seemed as though her dreams of fame and glory were on hold, but that wouldn't last long. Bonnie met Clyde through a mutual friend in January 1930. She was 19, he was 20. They were instantly attracted to each other. He had wanted to be a musician as a kid and she identified with this desire. They both wanted to be rich and famous. Bonnie knew right away that Clyde was a criminal, though she assumed he was committing what she considered small crimes, like stealing cars or petty theft from stores. But why would she get involved with another guy like Roy? Did she just have a thing for bad boys? No one except Bonnie herself can say what attracted her to Clyde. Was it her desire for adventure? Did she see him as her ticket out of Cement City? Was it that they shared the same desire for fame and fortune? Well, judging by the fact that she had previously been married to another criminal, many people think Bonnie had what is called hybristophilia also referred to as Bonnie and Clyde syndrome. 
Hybristophilia is a term defined by sexologist John Money in his 1986 book, Love Maps. This is a name for someone who derives sexual arousal from having a sexual partner who has committed a crime. There are two types of hybristophilia, passive, in which the person has no desire to be involved in the crimes, and aggressive, in which the person actively helps their partners commit the crimes. With Roy, Bonnie was certainly passive, and it's worth noting, possibly unaware of his criminal activity. With Clyde, she started out as passive, but as we know, would later take an active role in the crimes. So, is it safe to say Bonnie had hybristophilia? Since therapists never had a chance to study or interview Bonnie when she was alive, we'll never know for sure exactly what motivated her to be with someone like Clyde. Since hybristophilia wasn't studied until decades after Bonnie's death, and is actually based on her and Clyde, it's difficult to know whether this was the case. Since Bonnie did have a desire for fame, fortune, and adventure, Clyde could have been those ideals wrapped up into one handsome guy. Perhaps. Another possibility comes from an interesting finding in J. William Worden's childhood bereavement study. This found that one long-term consequence of losing a parent in childhood is antisocial personality. Antisocial personality is when a person shows disregard for right and wrong and no guilt or remorse for their behavior. After Bonnie's father's death, she acted out with complete disregard for consequences. That's right. Though the study found that males who lost a parent in childhood were more likely to be lawbreakers in their 20s than non-bereaved males, Bonnie could have experienced these same personality traits. The study also states that in 1966, a group of male and female prisoners were investigated, and psychologists found an excess of parental death in the group. Bonnie could have had that antisocial behavior in her all along, but Clyde brought it out in different ways. Maybe she saw that same behavior in Clyde and felt they were kindred spirits. So it sounds like we'll never know exactly what attracted Bonnie to Clyde. Maybe it was a combination of things. Bonnie died young and lived in a time before psychology was greatly studied, so we can only make assumptions as to what she saw in Clyde. But what happened after they met? Bonnie had a few weeks of blissful romance with Clyde. Emma liked him at first, noting how handsome he was and how Bonnie worshipped him. Clyde would even stay at Bonnie's house with her and her family. In February, though, police showed up at Bonnie's house to arrest him on suspicion of crimes committed in other cities. Bonnie begged them not to take him away, but of course they did. Emma was concerned that her daughter had fallen in love with another felon, but Bonnie insisted she would stick with Clyde no matter what. While Clyde was in jail, Bonnie wrote him often. She even visited him when she could. Some other guys gave her candy for Valentine's Day, but she sent it to Clyde instead. She would tell everyone that she hoped Clyde would get out of jail and straighten up so she could spend time with him. She truly loved him and didn't want him to live a life of crime. Do you think she meant that? Well, again, it's difficult to say. Perhaps she was just saying that because that's what society said she should say. But whatever the reason, she was adamant about the fact that she didn't want to be with yet another prisoner. 
Preparing for the life they would have when Clyde did indeed get out of prison and straighten up, Bonnie decided to introduce herself to Clyde's family. She had never met them before and thought that she should. After all, she and Clyde were going to be together forever. Clyde's family was poor and lived in a campground. Clyde's mother, Kimi, was traditional and religious and didn't like anyone who wasn't as holy as Clyde's sister-in-law, Blanche. Clyde had purposely kept Bonnie away from her because he didn't want to hear the problems his mother had with the woman he loved. And just as Clyde expected, his mother saw Bonnie's makeup and nice clothing and immediately disliked her. Bonnie hated the way they were living and instantly took a liking to Clyde's little sister, Marie, who was 11. Marie loved makeup and glamour and idolized Bonnie. Bonnie began inviting Marie to stay at her house. Bonnie loved children and had always wanted to have them, but she had fertility problems and was likely unable to conceive. Today, there have been many studies done on the psychological effects of infertility in women. Infertility is known to cause stress, anxiety, and symptoms of depression. According to a study by M.M. Seibel and M.L. Tamor, an infertile woman may feel a loss of control over her life. In the 1920s, the birth rate in U.S. cities declined. However, it was still much more common for women to have children then than it is now. For someone like Bonnie, who wanted to have a child, being infertile couldn't have been easy. Mm, no, it couldn't have. She wanted to be an actress, and that failed. She wanted to have a husband, and that failed. And she wanted to have a child, which also failed. Bonnie took hit after hit. So now, at age 19, even though Clyde was in jail, she wanted to make this romance work. It's easy to forget that, at this time, Bonnie and Clyde had only known each other for about a month. Is it strange that they were so in love with each other at this point? Remember, Bonnie did everything in excess, and it's very likely she had a fear of abandonment. Clyde did things in excess, too. They were 19 and 20, and they were in love. Perhaps this sort of instant infatuation was dangerous for Bonnie, but she was in it 100%. Clyde was transferred from the jail in Dallas to one in Denton, Texas, where he would stand trial for attempted robbery. Bonnie was crushed that he was so far away from her. Clyde wasn't convicted in the attempted robbery crime, but when he was released from that jail, he was immediately taken to Waco, Texas, where he was wanted for several other crimes. Bonnie moved to Waco to stay with her cousin so that she could be close to Clyde. Clyde was sentenced to two years in jail. At this time, in 1930, there were brutal hard labor prison farms all around the United States. On these prison farms, inmates were forced to perform farming tasks and hard labor with little to no pay. The idea was that the inmates would be paying off their crimes by performing these jobs. These prison farms were basically modern-day plantations, and the inmates, the majority of whom were black, were basically modern-day slaves. Living conditions on these prison farms were poor, and the inmates were given only the bare essentials needed to survive. Clyde knew he could deal with his relatively short two-year prison sentence. However, he was terrified he might be sent to one of the prison farms. In March 1930, Clyde asked Bonnie to help break him out of jail. 
At this time in history, women were largely seen as naive and innocent. She would be the perfect person to help him escape. On March 11, 1930, Bonnie, following Clyde's instructions, went to a fellow inmate's house, searched for a gun, tucked it into a belt underneath her dress, and brought it to Clyde in jail. Bonnie spent two days wondering whether Clyde had made it out of the jail. Then it was all over the newspapers. Clyde and his two cohorts had left a trail of stolen cars behind them, and the police knew just who they were looking for. Bonnie waited for Clyde to send word for her to meet him, but nothing came. Two strange men came to the house in Waco, and while these may have been some of Clyde's guys, Bonnie was paranoid they were police, so she went back to Dallas to stay with her mother, Emma. A week after the escape, Clyde was arrested in Ohio for attempted robbery. He was taken back to Texas and eventually sent to the most notorious hard labor prison farm in Texas, East Ham Prison Farm, to serve a 14-year sentence. After hearing about his latest arrest, Bonnie had no desire to help him escape again. She insisted she was finished with him. The aftermath of the first escape may have been too nerve-wracking, even for her. Bonnie tried to move on, sending fewer and fewer letters to Clyde. He wanted her to visit him, but she refused. She yearned to get back to the single life so she could go out with boys and have fun with her friends. As Bonnie moved on with her life, Clyde's mother kept fighting to get him paroled. In prison, Clyde was repeatedly raped and abused by other inmates. Rape victims often experience post-traumatic stress disorder, anxiety, or depression. According to a 1980 study of sexual assault in prisons by D. Lockwood, men who are raped in prison often have a fear of appearing less masculine. A study by J. Archer, J. Walker, and M. Davies in 2005 showed that long-term psychological effects on male sexual abuse victims included increased anger, emotional distancing, and self-harming behaviors. Clyde was only 22, and though he'd always been known to behave erratically and had been a criminal for years, this trauma couldn't have helped his mental state. In January 1932, Clyde cut off two of his toes in order to avoid further hard labor in the prison camp. One month later, his mother succeeded in getting him paroled. Clyde went back to Cement City to work in his father's new gas station. Bonnie was now 21 and had a new boyfriend and a new job, but she was still bored. 17 months after she had last seen him, Clyde showed up at her house, looking a little worse for wear, she immediately broke up with her boyfriend and went with Clyde. She insisted she didn't want to be with a fugitive. But no matter what a future with Clyde promised, it certainly wouldn't be boring. It was at this time, in 1932, when Bonnie would leave Cement City for good. Bonnie's mother, Emma, still disapproved of Clyde and was disappointed to see her daughter back with him. Bonnie loved her mother very much and didn't want to hurt her, so she told Emma she had gotten a cosmetic sales job in Houston and would be going there to start work. In reality, she was going to Houston to start her life on the run with Clyde and the Barrow Gang. The thing that most attracted Bonnie to this life was the adventure of it all. She'd spent her life wanting to be somebody, 
and being able to travel the country with her boyfriend as his gang committed crimes may have been the exact kind of excitement she was looking for. Psychologist Marvin Zuckerman is one of the pioneers in studying risk-taking behavior. He's profiled the personality type of high-sensation-seeking personality. These types of people tend to be uninhibited, impulsive, social, and they enjoy high-stimulus activities. They need to live risky lives. In relationships, these types of people are usually attracted to those who lead offbeat or free-spirited lives. Sensation-seeking personalities are also more likely to smoke, drink alcohol, and use drugs, all vices that Bonnie would become dependent on in her early 20s. So what happened next with the Barrow Gang? Since Clyde had such a difficult time on East Ham Prison Farm, the first thing he wanted to do after Bonnie joined the gang was break his friend Scally out of there. Bonnie's role in this crime wasn't that active. She basically drove alone to the prison to deliver plans to Scally on how they would break him out. Then Clyde and his gang made plans with nearby friends to get him out of jail. This was on April 17, 1932. Bonnie was able to drive into the jail without suspicion because she was a woman. And in 1932, the public perception of women was still that they were weak, meek, and usually housewives or loving mothers. But even for a woman, she was unassuming. She was still only 21 years old, and she was roughly 4 foot 10 inches and 90 pounds. She had copper-colored hair and wore makeup, dresses, and heels. She was also known as a charmer, so even if the guards had suspected her, she probably would have charmed her way past them. Bonnie proved to be a great addition to the gang in that sense. Knowing Bonnie, she would have loved the attention. On April 19th, they headed to Tyler, Texas to steal some cars. Bonnie and Clyde rode with a gang member named Fultz. Fultz said that Bonnie was, quote, articulate, thoughtful, and witty, end quote, and they instantly became friends. In Tyler, Bonnie stood watch as Clyde hotwired a Chrysler and Fultz stole a Buick. On the way back from Tyler, Fultz wanted to stop in a town called Kaufman to steal guns and ammunition. The Barrow gang scoped out the hardware store, but a night watchman spotted their stolen cars and thought they were suspicious. Clyde liked to steal the fanciest, most expensive cars, which would get the gang in trouble more than once. The night watchman approached the gang, and Clyde shot at him. He shot back, and Clyde and Fultz drove their respective cars away. They sped through town to head back toward Dallas, but they were met with a roadblock. They instantly turned the other way and thought they'd gotten away, but they found themselves on a muddy road that was impassable in their large cars. Clyde, Fultz, and Bonnie tried to push the cars out of the mud, but they were stuck. Bonnie, who naturally wore high heels and hated the outdoors, was probably miserable. But she kept up with Clyde and Fultz easily. Unable to free the cars, the gang went to a farm and asked for some mules. They rode the mules to a nearby town, where Clyde hotwired a car. Not long after they started off, though, the car ran out of gas. The gang was still being pursued by the authorities, so they escaped on foot into the woods. However, the police soon caught up with them. 
Clyde knew they wouldn't all escape, and he was a wanted man, so he left Bonnie and Fultz lying in a creek bed and ran away. He told them he'd come back for them. He never did. Bonnie and Fultz were arrested. It looked like Bonnie's adventure had come to an end, just three months after it started. We'll return to our story in just a moment from the ParCast Network. And now let's continue the story. It was 1932. Bonnie Parker was 21 years old and was taken to the local jail. When it came time for her trial, she planned to say that Clyde had kidnapped her and forced her into the whole thing. Though this wasn't true, it's what Fultz had instructed her to say, and she thought that was her only way out of being charged. When Emma found out Bonnie was in jail, she was angry, but also worried about her daughter. She wanted to bail her out, but hoped that leaving her there would teach her that being with Clyde would only lead to bad things. While in jail, Bonnie took up writing poetry again. She swore up and down that she was done with Clyde and would never see him again. Even so, Clyde's family visited her often and brought her fresh clothes and makeup. She wrote poems about life on the road as a criminal, one of them called Suicide Sal, told of a beautiful girl who got mixed up with gangsters and ended up shooting herself. Bonnie wrote other poems as well, which captured her heartbreak and her situation. In one line from Suicide Sal, Bonnie wrote, quote, Then I left my old home for the city, to play in its mad, dizzy whirl, not knowing how little pity it holds for a country girl. There I fell for the line of a henchman, a professional killer from Shy. I couldn't help loving him madly. For him, even now, I would die. End quote. Though Sal was a dramatized character, she does seem to express Bonnie's feelings for Clyde. He had gotten her arrested, and there was no sign that he would be coming back to break her from jail. Yet she still couldn't get over him. When Emma went to visit Bonnie, she noted that Bonnie was soberer, more quiet, and older than she had seemed before the arrest. This time in jail took something away from Bonnie. According to a report on the psychological impact of incarceration written by Craig Haney, many incarcerated people become hypervigilant, emotionally guarded, and often develop a diminished sense of self-worth. Bonnie's mother was used to seeing her as the hopeless romantic who wore her heart on her sleeve. It's likely that in jail, Bonnie had to toughen up and hide her true emotions. Bonnie was in jail from April to June 1932. At her grand jury trial on June 17th, Bonnie claimed she was kidnapped by the Barrow Gang, and she was released without charge. She hadn't heard a word from Clyde the whole time she was in jail, nor afterward. When she was released, she found out he was wanted for murder and was on the run around the country. He would try to contact her, but she never replied, swearing she was done with him for good. Did she learn a lesson from her poetry character, Sal? Sadly, no. After less than a month on her own, she realized she would rather be on the run with a criminal than stuck at home. So she sent word to Clyde that she wanted to rejoin him. 
It's hard to believe Bonnie would want to rejoin him, especially after what he put her through. Mm, There are several psychological reasons why Bonnie may have wanted to keep going back to Clyde. The first is because of her sensation-seeking personality. Even though the risks she took with Clyde had landed her in jail, she may have wanted to experience that feeling again. Second, many women in current or former abusive relationships are incredibly insecure, as discussed earlier. She may have felt that if she didn't have Clyde, she would be alone forever. Thirdly, if Bonnie had hybristophilia, it's likely she felt an intense sexual attraction to Clyde because of his crimes. Whatever the reason, Bonnie found herself once again lying to her mother and traveling to meet Clyde. He was living in Wichita Falls, Texas, with fellow gang member Raymond Hamilton at the time. Bonnie told her mother she got a waitressing job in Wichita Falls and moved in with Clyde and Raymond. She lived happily with them until August 1932. There's no evidence that she took any part in their crimes during this time. She missed her mother dearly and decided to go home to visit her on August 6th. When she was home, however, Clyde and Raymond decided they wanted to go to a dance hall in Stringtown, Oklahoma, While there, they got into a shootout with the police, and Clyde shot and killed Deputy Eugene C. Moore. When Clyde told Bonnie what happened, she didn't seem fazed by the fact that the love of her life was a murderer. She told him she knew of a place they could hide. This was the first time she took a really active role in the gang's criminal behavior. Bonnie's aunt Millie was living in New Mexico. Millie hadn't spoken to Bonnie or her family in years, so Bonnie thought that going to stay with her was a pretty safe idea. On August 13, 1932, with Clyde and Raymond traveling under fake names, Bonnie led them to Millie's house in Carlsbad, New Mexico. It was fine at first, with Bonnie catching up with and charming her aunt. Bonnie claimed she had just gotten married and that she and her husband were on a trip with their friend. Millie told them they could stay as long as they wanted. They were only at Millie's house for a few days, during which Clyde and Raymond would go outside to target practice with their many guns. Millie started to put two and two together. She thought it was strange that such a young couple could afford such nice cars and was suspicious of the amount of money they had with them. Clyde could never resist flaunting his money. Millie knew there had been several car thefts around town recently, so she contacted the police, who came to her house to arrest the three of them. Deputy Joe Johns showed up at the house and asked Bonnie where she got the Ford they were driving. She told him that her husband owned it, and the deputy went out to check the car. While he was looking at the car, Clyde and Raymond, armed with a shotgun, threatened him and fired a warning shot. The deputy surrendered, and the gang took him hostage. Clyde threatened to kill the deputy, but Bonnie never wanted him to kill anyone. The deputy rode with them until they reached Texas. It seems strange that Clyde would escape to a state where he was wanted. It's not as strange as you would think. Clyde always drove toward Texas when escaping. Texas was his home. Clyde was cocky. There's never been evidence to find that criminals have a desire to get caught. But according to psychologist Stanton Samenow, who has studied criminal minds and behavior, many serial criminals have a 
super-optimism, which is a feeling that they've gotten away with crimes before and will have no trouble getting away again. This may sound ridiculous to you and me, but to a criminal who has a sense of invincibility and who believes he is a criminal mastermind, this is totally normal. Clyde believed he was a great criminal. Even when he'd been caught in the past, he'd gotten away every time. So going to Texas would never feel like a risk to him. Interesting. Well, they dropped Deputy Johns off in Victoria, Texas, but not before Bonnie and Clyde told him both of their names. The deputy had never heard of them before, because at this point, the Barrow Gang was only really known in Texas. Bonnie told him that their lives were an adventure every day. They stole a new car, got into another car chase, and escaped. But from that moment on, the pictures and names of Bonnie and Clyde were on wanted posters throughout Texas. Emma found out what her daughter was really up to when she saw Bonnie's photo on a wanted poster. That had to have been tough, especially for someone like Emma, who always felt she was better than other people. But Emma seems to have blamed Clyde for much, if not all, of Bonnie's behavior. This would have taken the pressure off of her so she never had to wonder about the daughter she raised. Still, in 1932, Bonnie was pretty inactive in the gang's crimes. She would hide in safe houses while Clyde and Raymond committed crimes. In September 1932, Raymond wanted out of the gang, so Bonnie and Clyde drove him to Michigan, leaving a trail of stolen cars in their path. One of the cars they stole was registered in Illinois, and they left it in Oklahoma. When police found the stolen car in Oklahoma, they looked inside and found a medicine bottle with Clyde's name on it. This alerted authorities around the Midwest that Bonnie and Clyde had been there. They, too, were now on the lookout for the criminal couple. Throughout this time, the public saw Bonnie as a dumb girl in love, They didn't think she could possibly have anything to do with the crimes, and they didn't believe a woman like her could have a bad bone in her body. Rather than referring to her as Bonnie Thornton, her married name, authorities would refer to her as a Dallas girl or Clyde's frequent companion. Although Bonnie wasn't active in the crimes yet, she did know what she was doing, and she embraced it. She wanted worldwide fame, and she didn't care how she got it. During their time on the run in 1932, Bonnie and Clyde sent unsigned postcards to their families to let them know they were okay. Bonnie was so close to her mother. It must have been hard for them to be apart for so long. Bonnie and Clyde would stay with farmers overnight when they could. They would share any extra cash they had with the farmers. After all, these were farmers who were trying to cope with life during the Dust Bowl. In the early 1930s, there was a dry period in the regions from Texas to Nebraska that killed crops and livestock. There were dust storms that killed many people as well. Drought and soil erosion were caused by years of overplanting in naturally dry areas. Many farmers were forced out of their homes and moved in search of better living conditions. But some stayed living in poor conditions. Clyde didn't like people very much. But he recognized the hard times the poor farmers were going through and wanted to help them. Bonnie loved being around people and being the center of attention. She especially loved the children she met and begged Clyde to give them rides around the farm on the running boards of their fancy stolen cars. 
The farmers loved Bonnie just as much as she loved them. Bonnie and Clyde must have been a great respite from the depressed, dust bowl-stricken lives these farmers were living. If they couldn't find lodging on a farm, they would be forced to sleep in their car or camp outside. Bonnie hated the outdoors, being dirty, snakes, and thunderstorms. Though this was the era of prohibition, she was a heavy whiskey drinker, and these nights camping outside made her drink even more heavily. It was on nights like these that Bonnie and Clyde would fight. Clyde would get violent with her. This behavior, though it didn't happen often, continued throughout the course of their relationship. Even when Clyde abused Bonnie, though, she never tried to leave him. Remember, Bonnie had been in an abusive relationship with her husband, Roy. It's possible she saw this behavior as love or normal. According to psychologist Michael J. Formica, in abusive relationships, the abuser has a pathological need to control, and the abused has a pathological need for attention. Both partners in abusive relationships are usually very insecure. The abuser is usually egocentric or self-centered, which seems to apply to Clyde. He always wanted people to know his name. He disregarded consequences, he stole from people, and he committed murder without remorse. People in relationships who are abused believe they love that person in spite of the abuse. Bonnie may have drank so much in order to cope with these feelings. Nevertheless, she still was madly in love with Clyde. He would show her small acts of kindness that made her fall in love with him over and over again. Clyde knew Bonnie liked to write poetry, so he stole her a typewriter so she could write when they were on the road. He knew she liked whiskey, but she felt it wasn't ladylike to smell like whiskey, so he would bring her lemons to chew on so she could freshen her breath, which later became one of Bonnie's trademarks. He got a camera, and they would take goofy photos together while they were on the road. Even if they would be the only ones to ever see these photos, it made them feel special. In love with the idea of being famous, Bonnie and Clyde would keep newspaper clippings about themselves, even though these clippings were about their criminal activity. Bonnie wanted everyone to love her, and Clyde loved the idea of being feared. There's an interesting concept in psychology called the God-bug syndrome. It says that certain people have feelings of greatness, walking hand-in-hand with feelings of smallness. Perhaps Bonnie and Clyde both suffered from this. They were both poor kids from poor families. They were looked down upon their whole lives. Clyde had been to prison where he had been raped and abused. Bonnie had been a waitress and possibly a sex worker. Now they reached a point where everybody knew their names. They had reached the God level they had both always wanted to reach. People in states across the country knew their names. They knew their faces. What could possibly bring them down from that God-like state? But what about the bug part? We can see the bug aspect manifesting itself in Clyde's treatment of Bonnie. Whenever she questioned him about a plan or about having to sleep outside, Clyde got angry and violent. At these moments, he was reminded of the fact that he wasn't a god. Similarly, when the glamorous Bonnie was forced into these situations, she probably felt just as she did back in Cement City at her grandparents' house. For Bonnie and Clyde, in these moments, the illusion was over. No amount of fame or fortune could prevent them from going back to normalcy. 
So there was only one thing to do, become more famous. In late November 1932, the Barrow Gang decided to rob the Farmer and Miners Bank in Orinogo, Missouri. This would be the first robbery in which Bonnie was actively involved. The plan was to have Bonnie go in the day before and case the place. So on November 29th, she walked into the bank. But in 1932, it was strange for a young woman to walk into a bank alone. The tellers immediately found it suspicious. Bonnie was inexperienced and didn't notice anything out of the ordinary. When Clyde and his fellow gang members went in to rob the bank the next day, the teller was ready for him. He shot at Clyde with a pistol. He missed, and Clyde returned fire with his submachine gun. The teller hid, and Clyde ran out into the street to get away. Bonnie was in the getaway car, ready to pick up the gang. The Barrow Gang came away with $110, roughly $1,800 nowadays, while Bonnie drove them quickly out of there. Though she wasn't very successful, this moment marked Bonnie's first traceable crime as an official Barrow Gang member. In total, the Barrow Gang only ever robbed about a dozen banks, but they often stole guns and cars. Bonnie acted as their getaway driver in these crimes going forward. It's said she never fired a gun and was always against shooting people, if at all possible. Over the next few months, Bonnie would prove to be a valuable asset as the getaway driver and underestimated woman. Though her face was all over wanted posters, she was still able to go into a prison and help break their former gang member, Fultz, out of jail. Clyde was unpredictable and impulsive. Bonnie was often angered by his lack of planning, and he would get angry with her for challenging him. Overall, though, their relationship remained as strong as it had always been. On Christmas Eve 1932, they picked up a teen named W.D. Jones, who would be a member of the Barrow Gang for some time. Bonnie loved him, as she loved all children, and he became like a little brother to her. W.D. had known who Bonnie and Clyde were by reputation alone. They were starting to become household names, but it was nothing compared to how famous they would become in 1933. On January 6, 1933, Bonnie and Clyde found themselves in a shootout with Texas Ranger Smoot Schmid. Bonnie was the getaway driver, but Schmid swore she was one of the shooters. He referred to her as, quote, a tough two-gun girl, as tough as the back end of a shooting gallery, end quote. This was the first time anyone ever referred to Bonnie as a criminal. Criminal or not, this made the people of Depression-era United States fall even more in love with Bonnie. They wanted to know more about the girl from Texas, the one woman among the sea of male gangsters. They were charmed just looking at her wanted poster. And Bonnie finally had what she'd always desired. People were talking about her. But a taste of fame would never be enough for Bonnie. Over the next 16 months, Bonnie would have what she had only thought possible in her wildest dreams. Nearly everyone in the southwestern United States would know her name and recognize her face. But when you're the most famous female criminal in the country, there's only one place to go. Down. 
Next week, we'll show how Bonnie's fame morphed into infamy with a series of civilian casualties and police murders that turned the public's adulation into disgust. And we'll take a look at the only way her story could end, in a shower of bullets with Clyde at her side. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. If you want to listen to any previous episodes of Female Criminals, you can find them on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify, or on our website, parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. Join us next Wednesday as we continue delving into the criminal activity of Bonnie Parker. Female Criminals was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Carly Madden and Maggie Admire. Female Criminals is written by Stacey Milborn and stars Claire Delamar and Vanessa Richardson. 